Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio. Every week, Federal News Radio Executive Editor Jason Miller interviews CIOs of federal agencies about the latest directives, IT challenges, and successes. Now, your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today's a special edition of Ask the CIO, where we're talking cybersecurity and the WannaCry attack. First, we hear from Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Undersecretary for Cybersecurity at the Homeland Security Department. I sat down with Manfra in her office in Roslyn, Virginia, to drill down into the real story about the federal government's response to the WannaCry ransomware attack that happened in May. The malware attack impacted more than 300 countries and infected more than 300,000 computers worldwide. But for DHS, the White House, OMB, federal CIOs, and a host of others in the federal community, the cyber threat became a shining example of how all the work over the past few years is paying off. Generally speaking, the federal government seemed to come out pretty well against it. So what I'm hoping to start with is just some basics. Now that here we are about a month after, a month and a half or so after the, the initial incident, where are we now? What, what do we know about it? What can you tell us about the impact to the federal government and maybe more broadly? Well, we don't want to do a victory lap. The federal government uh, did weather this uh, particular instance of uh, ransomware rather well, as did most organizations within the U.S. And I think that is, uh, well, it's probably too early to assess uh, why that is, and there's probably multiple different factors for that. I think parts of it have to do with much of the work that the federal government has done over the years, patching critical vulnerabilities, prioritizing the time it takes to patch critical vulnerabilities, that is, reducing the amount of time, so focusing agencies on uh, priorities uh, such as that. We also have been, over the past couple of years very focused on ransomware in particular. And uh, so us and the FBI together over the last, say, 18 months have been working to uh, spread the word. We've published best practices on how to deal with ransomware. And we have been going around the country educating as both users and the CIO and the um, CISO community, both inside the government and across critical infrastructure. And then in particular, for which was relevant for for this instance was the uh, particular vulnerability that was being exploited uh, by this ransomware. We reinforced uh, Microsoft's uh, patching by publishing a specific product to uh, address that vulnerability, tried to raise awareness again, and in our engagement with federal agencies and and critical infrastructure, uh, raising awareness and getting folks to to prioritize uh, patching. One of the the things that someone said to me, one of the big changes that happened was back in 2012 was around the getting agencies off Windows XP because WannaCry really took advantage of that whole of that vulnerability in that software. Did you guys at DHS, when you talk to agencies, how many agencies on those phone calls early on said, oh, we do have a lot of XP or, wow, that's only an XP vulnerability. We really don't have that much left. What kind of conversations did you hear from, from agencies, generally speaking? In addition to uh, focusing on agencies on prioritizing the, the patching of critical vulnerabilities, we've also recognized the issue of legacy systems that we have in place. So we have been focusing on modernizing and encouraging agencies where they are using uh, unsupported uh, software to ensure that they allocate the resources to modernize those systems in cases where you have organizations that can't modernize for a variety of 
perfectly legitimate reasons, uh, sometimes because of resources, uh, sometimes because of just this, the system itself. We've worked with them and they've worked internally to uh, identify other means for mitigating against, uh, against those potential vulnerabilities there. One of the things you mentioned was the focus on ransomware from the FBI, from DHS. Talk a little bit more about those efforts because I think, again, those sometimes are happening if you were underneath the covers to the general public, they don't realize that, that this has been maybe a major focus. Over the last, uh, say, two years, maybe a little bit uh, before that, we started to see more widespread use of ransomware by criminal organizations and um, increasing questions from whether it's a business or a consumer as to how, how should I deal with this? How can I best protect against it? And, and what should I do if I do become infected? So that led us to a dialogue inside the government of what what should our advice be to organizations? How can we best assist them? And that led to the um, best practices document that we issued, uh, and then engagement, particularly you know with the FBI at the field office level and, and ability to answer questions uh, as uh, victims come to them, and uh, with our folks that we also have out in the field. The bad actors they're always evolving. They're always using um, new techniques, and we want to stay on top of that. And, and ransomware being a unique and difficult thing for a victim to, to deal with, we really wanted to prioritize, and, and so that's how, how we did that. So here we are again, uh, you know, a few months after the initial attack. A any reports of federal agencies getting impacted? A anything you can tell us more about the, the impact of WannaCry on federal agencies and their networks and systems? We're still not experiencing any uh, issues with uh, WannaCry. This isn't real wood, so I won't knock on it. But <laughs> we are we are still look like we're weathering this particular one, but that doesn't mean that we're lowering our uh, readiness and our alert on either this or other uh, ransomware or other malware uh, that is targeting the federal government. I remember when this uh, first really became public that this was impacting. Walk me through a little bit about back in May about what happened and when. So here you are in your office, maybe in Roslyn. You have this great view. If only our, my audience could see this wonderful view the DC skyline. The phone rings and walk me through what happens. This is the story that I'd really love to, to tell folks because it demonstrates a variety of things. It demonstrates how mature we've become as a DHS. It de demonstrates the maturity of our partnerships with other government agencies and, and globally and with our private sector partnerships as well as the commitment that the entire community, whether it's public or private. On May 12th in the morning, we first started seeing some open source reporting and uh, as you call, it started in Asia and kind of started to migrate over into Europe. Uh, so at that point, we were we were tracking it. We were aware of it. And uh, we uh, first started to engage uh, when it, with um, the overseas uh, international certs. So for folks who aren't familiar with that terminology, the Cybersecurity Incident Response Team, or a C-CERT, is sort of an international term for um, organizations such as the United States uh, CERT, which sits at DHS, where this is the, the team that the watch and warning function, the incident response, the analysis that, that goes into. And over the years, we've been working with uh, partner countries to develop similar domestic national 
certs across the globe. And so that was the sort of the first activation, if you will, is the uh, international watch and warning network, the um, uh, individual bilateral engagements with a few of the the certs that were experiencing incidents domestically, and uh, they started passing us information. That sometimes it was technical information if they actually had that, um, that that we could then use. Uh, sometimes it was just uh, context. Uh, it would help us distinguish what's true, what's not, what's being reported in the press, and, and, and what's uh, reality. And so that engagement um, was was very quick, and that mobilized quickly. Let me jump in because I want to jump in. So when we when Asia is 12 hours ahead, roughly give or take, uh, Europe's roughly six to eight hours ahead. So was this like 8 a.m. your time, East Coast time? Was it more like 6 a.m. Were you just getting into work and, and your your cell phone was buzzing? Give me a sense. Sure, it was. Um I think probably in the 7 to 8 a.m. time frame when our um, CERT started to um, uh, become aware of this and become engaged, and uh, more in the mid-morning when our engagement with the European partners. For people who don't know, the CERT is 24-7, 365, so if something happened at 2 in the morning, so 2 p.m. Asia in, in Japan or China or wherever, they would still be aware of it and, and be able to, to, to take action if necessary. So so this is not just, oh, look, morning, got my coffee, and my buzzers are happy. But, I mean, this is a, a constant. That's well, absolutely just, true. You're absolutely right. I think sometimes people don't realize how that works, right? I mean, they, they think about a security operations center or any kind of operations center, but don't really connect the dots until, until there's an event. Absolutely. So that engagement uh, continued. And as um, for those of you who are following, following it in the news, um, when the national health system in uh, the U.K. Uh, experienced an issue with the WannaCry, that obviously escalated our concern in the United States, in addition, you know, continued and uh, elevating uh, our partnership with uh, with the U- our UK partners and our counterparts uh, over there. And so from that point on, um, we started to escalate within the government. We initiated something called enhanced coordination procedures, um, which just means we have you know, more resources devoted to this um, and um, focused on broadening our engagement. And um, within a couple of hours, we had all of the uh, major internet service providers on the phone, and uh, we were sharing information. Um, by that evening, we had um, more than uh, 40 information technology and cybersecurity companies engaged in addition to the, the service providers. And at this point, we're still, we're, we're focused on two major things, samples of the malware, people who have samples of the malware, let's share it, let's understand what's going on. So our forensic analysts, whether they're in the government or in the private sector or overseas, can um, be taking that malware apart, look at what's going on there, and turn that into defensive measures. And the quicker that we can turn that around and the quicker we can get that out, uh, the the higher chance we have of preventing other potential victims. And so that's much of Friday afternoon into the evening. And by Friday night, early Saturday morning, I want, it might have been you know, 1, 2 in the morning on Saturday, we were actually able to, as a result of all of that collaboration, we were able to issue a joint FBI-DHS alert um, that had some of our initial uh, information. This is largely technical information that other security operation centers can use. Um, we pushed that to all the federal government's agencies. We were able to use our own um, intrusion detection systems, uh, plug in what's called signatures, and put that so we have uh, 
uh, broader protections across the government. And uh, by Saturday morning, we were able to put out a, a detailed uh, malware analysis. And, and again, we had par our own folks were working all through the night. We had multiple companies that were working all through the night. And um, by uh, and, and it's just one example of, of how this um, sort of public-private collaboration works so well. And, and globally, um, we had on one of our regular engagements, an uh, individual from the private sector said, you know, we really need to get to the small, medium-sized business because they're not reading necessarily the stuff that um, you might be publishing on the DHS website. Thought it was a great idea. Uh, so we worked to develop a an alert tailored to the small, medium-sized uh, business community. And we had the Small Business Administration post something on a Sunday and um, get that out through their community. And, and so that's how we continued to iterate as we um, learned more about what was going on, either from overseas victims um, or from what our own malware analysts were um, looking at. We continued to update those indicators and those signatures and push them out. We have to take a break. My guest is Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Undersecretary for Cybersecurity at the Homeland Security Department. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Undersecretary for Cybersecurity at the Homeland Security Department. So the enhanced engagement uh, efforts that you talked about, you, you kind of like flip the button or whatever you're going to call it to get it going and included 40 companies. You guys exercise this? So this is all um, relatively recent. At the end of the uh, last administration, we published a Presidential Policy Directive 41 that lays out for the first time a unified um, cyber incident response doctrine. And what that lays out is, is key lanes of effort from the federal perspective. Um, it lays out some key principles. Such such as we will have a coordinated, unified uh, government response. We recognize the, the role of potential victims and want to partner with them. Also, um, how we um, de uh, engage with the global community as well. So kind of laid out some of those key principles. And then it also laid out three major lines of effort, uh, the Department of Homeland Security leading something called asset response, which that is similar to basically what I just described. It's where we are focused on network protection and network defense and engaging with the technology community, the uh, communications community, the uh, IT security, understand what they're seeing, working together to turn that around into network defense measures. If victims are identified, we, you know, we prioritize notification of those victims if it's information we have or we learn about it from the private sector and we um, oftentimes will go on site um, to help them in an incident response that didn't occur here. The FBI and the intelligence community focuses on, of course, the intelligence, but also um, in, in getting a full picture of the intelligence and uh, and then also focusing on, you know, who did it and, and how can we get the, the bad guys off the system. And that laid out certain provisions, such as how you will establish enhanced coordination procedures, et cetera. So um, we did develop those over the last year, but they are new, and um, we're still exercising them in, in, in real life or, or in exercises. So there's two responses from DHS. There's the external and the internal. Mm -hmm. The internal one, let's focus on that for a second. You, you mentioned about the signatures piece of getting, figuring out what the malware looked like, uh, breaking it down to put defensive measures in place. Uh, part of the way DHS did that was through the Einstein program. Talk a little bit about that effort. How quickly were we able to do that? Was Is this something that U.S. CERT is able to do? Is this some, coming from who? And then 
how does the process work? Do you do an agency, interagency call and tell all the chief information security officers, okay, we're sending it out, plug it in, like, give me a sense. We encourage other uh, organizations to follow this as well, believe in a layered defense. And so Einstein, or the National Cybersecurity Protection System, which is generally known as Einstein, is a part of that. And that's a, a perimeter security where we, DHS, are able to provide um, signatures at, uh, working with the internet service providers that provide the government. But, but agencies also have um, protection mechanisms in, internal. So so we do both. We get them all on a call. In this case, you know, it was a Friday afternoon, late evening. Again, prioritizing, make sure you're patching this vulnerability if you haven't already, and best practices for how to communicate with your workforce about what they should be doing if they identify this potential infection. And then um, that uh, that evening, we had about uh, five signatures. Uh, we have a couple different versions of Einstein. The Einstein 2, we had five signatures deployed into, which is the intrusion detection system that lives at trusted internet connections throughout the government. And then we had uh, 18 signatures deployed to uh, Einstein 3A, which is our ability to take classified information and use it to protect unclassified networks. Um, and then we continue to add additional signatures uh, over time as we learn. So it was, you know, it was both. How, how many are we up to now, roughly? Are you able to give me your five under E2 and 18 under E3A? Are you up to how many? I think we're at about um, seven to 10 for Einstein 2 and um, around, to stay at around 18 to 20 for Einstein 3A. So these signatures were out there and, and continue to be added. What was the, uh, when I've talked to other agency CIOs about WannaCry, and, and it's come up several times, for instance, I, I spoke with bureau-level CIO at HHS recently, and, and she said the call started, and in fact, Secretary Tom Price got on the phone, which was very impressive in the fact that the secretary would get on the phone. What was the other calls that were happening to? Did you guys hold a call with all the secretaries, all the DEPSECs? Did OMB initiate the call with the members of Congress? Can you walk me through some and the other kind of communications? There's escalation processes in, internal to the government as well. Tom Bossert uh, engaged um, and with all of us and with the um, relevant cabinet members. I think that's another thing uh, that is very important too is um, whether you're in the government or in the private sector, the engagement of that cabinet secretary or CEO, very important. And so, yes, they, there, there was engagement at that level of Friday and, and Saturday and kind of continued reporting. Yes, engaging with Congress Congress to, to let them know, as we do in all of these types of incidents, and, and what's going on and how the situation is evolving. They obviously have networks to protect as well, and um, in addition to their role in the oversight. And, and so we want to ensure that, for, for both reasons, that we're getting that information to them. So we get through the weekend. The alert goes out from SBA. The federal networks are protected, at least initially, with the new signatures you have. What happens the following week, two weeks? Walk me through some of the next steps that have happened. I think going into uh, Monday. Day, we were um, engaged with our partners, um, Australia, New Zealand, Asian partners, just to see, are, were they also seeing this die down? Like, that was sort of our overview of what we were seeing in the press. They generally, again, nobody wants to slow down. We're still sort of at a heightened alert state, but um, at that point, going into Monday and Tuesday, it was still, well, let's keep pushing. Let's ensure that we're all still engaging. But it did appear that, you know, with the activation of a kill switch and a, a couple of other mitigation 
points that people had, had put forward um, that were done independent of the government, uh, that we were seeing it slow down. And uh, so after a few days, we, we did dial back the, uh, the enhanced coordination procedures and, and go back to normal operations. And since then, have you, as you assert, as DHS spent time doing what, just keeping that, that extra eye out just in case if it resurfaces in some way, a new the malware morphs in some way or someone copycats? Absolutely. And uh, not just DHS, but the, um, you know, the rest of the government still on alert for anything that can spread that quickly, those capabilities. Um, and, and we want to keep on the lookout for, for how, that's, how that's evolving, still engaged with the private sector, what are they seeing and overseas, and not just on this, but, you know, any evolving uh, threat like this. We have to take a break. My guest is Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Undersecretary for Cybersecurity at the Homeland Security Department. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Undersecretary for Cybersecurity at the Homeland Security Department. We talked internally to the federal networks and systems. The other piece that DHS is working with the critical infrastructure providers, you guys have a couple different initiatives, the automated information sharing, the enhanced cybersecurity services. Talk where those two initiatives and any others really played a role in, in alerting whether it's those 40 companies you talked about working with or the ISPs, you know, telecom providers. How did that process work? We were able to also use our automated indicator sharing program. We have about 140 participants. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean individual entities. Many of those are information sharing and analysis organizations, so they many of them can represent hundreds, if not more, organizations. So when we push, and when we did push indicators out through, through that as well, and um, so we were able to touch uh, even more organizations through through that. As you mentioned, the, the partnership was not just with the um, IT uh, security and the uh, communications service, you know, internet service provider community. We also want to, you know, we have the financial sector, we have the health and human services. Uh, of course, given what happened in England, we're um, particularly engaged with them in coordination with the um, Department of Health and Human Services. The energy sector, you know, we sort of engaged the, the entire community to ensure that if they were seeing victims in their, in their sector, they could report back to us. Uh, and uh, in this case, it was not necessarily the case, but that they were able to take the information we had and pass it to their uh, sectors. You mentioned just briefly the enhanced coordination capabilities. Give me a sense of what that actually is like. I mean, like you, you mentioned you started seeing the first reports early in the morning. It, it really spiked kind of mid-morning when, when things happen in, in, the, in the U.K. What happens when you, when, you, when you flip the switch, so to speak, and you go down to the NKIC or U.S. CERT? What's that like? You know, as you mentioned, um, for us, uh, when the kind of the tipping point, the escalation for us was um, – when the UK experienced the ransomware attack on their um, hospital system. And so I personally went to the NKIC uh, immediately and um, engaged uh, and activated our partnership with the Communications Information Sharing Analysis Center, which re has um, large ISPs represented on that. And, uh, and is that a, like a big red button? Do you hit a siren? You know, do you remember the movie War Games, the original? Did, you, do, did someone come out and say, take us to death? 
DEFCON 4. Give, give me a sense of what that's like. Sure. I wish I, I wish I had a siren. <laughs> I did not have a siren. But, um, no, so, so what I did immediately was, um, you know, we have folks who are responsible for the, um, the relationships and, and managing those, um, uh, our partnerships with those sectors. So got those individuals on the phone, and I said, I need you to um, uh, get that uh, community on the phone to see what they're seeing and, and share information. Went to the NKIC, which is where U.S. CERT uh, lives, and after some discussion with my senior leadership in the department, and we decide to escalate to the enhanced coordination procedures. And what that really means is that you now are taking a, a senior federal person who, uh, you know, in, in the NKIC, and they are now full-time devoted to managing this case. And um, they have prioritization for resources. We have a lot of things going on, but that means now this person has that control. And in this case, we uh, actually identified two so that one could work uh, during the day and then the other could work during the night. And and then we started to prioritize resources. We bring the public affairs folks in and we bring we bring other folks that are not necessarily sitting on the NKIC floor. We bring everybody in, kind of set up a, a war room, if you will, and where everybody is able to coordinate what are we seeing on the press, what are we seeing from the private sector, and our, our stakeholder engagement folks, we bring them in uh, and, and make sure that they're in uh, constant uh, contact with uh, our, our partners and, and start setting up, um, you know, in this case, we set up a twice-daily call with our private sector partners, the first one of which was um, at 9 p.m. Friday night and, and started to go through through that cycle. And, and so, this, so that's essentially what that means. Um, you know, I was there until um, about 11 or so at night, and then um, the gentleman who uh, was luckily selected for the mission manager, he ended up needing to stay through the night, but then he was relieved the next morning, and, and so we continued to work that way. But um, most of the senior leadership uh, did spend the weekend uh, at the NKIC. And what was the NKIC floor like? Was it a craze of busyness? Was it people moving here, there, and everywhere? Or was it just kind of that, like, if you will, very quiet, people heads down doing their thing? Add some color to the discussion, because people think of a, they see the movies, mm -hmm. and it's never like it's in the movies, but maybe this is the one time it gets to be. The room that we established, uh, you know, what a lot of people term a, a war room, where everybody kind of comes together, yes, that was very active. The the labs where we conduct the malware analysis and everything, um, you know, a lot of that is just analysts, uh, professionals, they know how to do this, um, and a lot of their work is on the computer and a lot of their work is remotely. So they're involved in various different um, groups and exchanging of information on the computer. So um, generally that wasn't probably too uh, loud, but they were, um, they're, they're very active. And uh, yeah, so I, I would say um, while we are a 24-7 center, we don't always have, uh, we, uh, we have more staffing in the day than we do at night, but we were at full staffing uh, as well during the night in this case. So here we are. We're about probably a month, month and a half again since the, the initial attack. Give me a sense of the postmortem you're able to do. When you look back, what worked, what didn't? I know that the postmortem is not necessarily finished yet, but tell me what you can. Postmortem indicates that somebody died. <laughs> but, um, but yes, we're, uh, we are doing after action reviews. Um, one of the things we believe strongly in is we have to be a learning organization. We always have to be continuously improving. And uh, so fairly immediately within 
within a, a week of us um, reducing back to uh, normal operations, we conducted in an internal um, call hot wash and where we just walked through what was everybody's experience. And, um, you know, I believe it's important to not just look at the operators, and all, but also to bring in, you know, the public affairs folks, the ledge uh, team, other, the, the broader team, not just the, um, the operators and the analysis and, and, and analysts themselves. And so we all sat down talked about you know some internal coordination as I said these are these some of these processes are uh, somewhat new not that we haven't done incident response for years but some of these particular ways so we're going to update some of our internal processes uh, as a result we got feedback from other government partners and then we um, conducted a hot wash with our private sector partners as well and um, both again both within the IT and the communications community but also representatives of other sectors and uh, got a lot of really good feedback there, and and then um, and then internal to the federal government on the CIO side, um, so what are some you know ways? How can we better communicate? How can we ensure that you have what you need? Uh, I think from from that perspective, we've come a long way, and um, generally the feedback was good, and um, everybody appreciated the um, the urgency and also the ability to move quickly how quickly we activated uh, the, the various different communications protocols and the mechanisms that we have to, to mobilize these different communities and um, how quickly we were able to push information out and our willingness to um, share um, not, you know, draft products, draft analysis with uh, external partners so that they could improve that before we actually finalized it. So those are some of the, the positives. The things that we want to improve upon is in, in some cases, some of these things were ad hoc, and so we want to build those into more um, specific protocols so that it's, it's not just, oh, well, I happen to know this individual, so I'm going to call this person, but we have something that can uh, live through those those personal personality relationships. So we're going to spend some more time developing some specific playbooks um, that, that we can uh, drill down to uh, at a more granular level with the, with the private sector and with other agencies. Here's the tough question question. So you, you made it through. You can take a breath. How would you assess the way things work? You know, you sit at the top in some regards, you know, maybe not the, the very top, but you got to see it all happening. How satisfied are you from, from the DHS perspective? I'm very satisfied. I have been as part of the Cybersecurity and Communications Unit at DHS for about 10 years now. Uh, I have never seen us uh, move uh, this quickly for this expansive of an issue across so many different partners across the globe and provide value uh, this quickly. I'm very proud of our organization. A lot of us had the, the weekends <laughs> ruined and Mother's Day excuses and um, you know people people worked incredibly hard I'm also you know just incredibly proud to be a part of this partnership with the private sector and with our agency partners uh, you know when when we asked people to get on calls at 9 and 10 at night uh, with minimal notice on a Friday night you had 50 organizations show up and that says something about the commitment to uh, that these organizations have to uh, helping us and helping this country so I'm incredibly proud, very satisfied with how this, this worked, and, um, you know, always tweaks to be made, but, but I'm really, 
really happy. So you know the next one's coming eventually. You don't know when or where or how and, and how serious it will be. Does this give you a little more confidence in the ability to respond to the next one? Because uh, WannaCry, generally speaking, what I've heard from experts is maybe it wasn't as, as, as sophisticated as some others, but doesn't mean the next one won't be. So does this provide you with confidence, provide the federal government with a little bit of confidence? I mean, I think I already had confidence. I, I knew they would execute, um, but it is always good to, to see it in, in real life. And so, yes, I, I would say absolutely more confidence. And I'd like to think that it gives the public more confidence. And the more we can explain these, these things to the public and uh, our partners in these sorts of efforts, as, as you said, there were there will be more. And um, ideally, we can prevent them from happening. But if we can't, we need to be able to mobilize uh, this community to, to mitigate the potential consequences. We have to take a break. My guest is Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Undersecretary for Cybersecurity at the Homeland Security Department. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this part of the show, my guest is John Felker, the director of the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, or NCIC, at the Homeland Security Department. One tool used to counter the WannaCry attack was the Automated Indicator Sharing, or AIS, capability. AIS enables the exchange of cyber threat indicators between the government and the private sector at machine speed. Felker talks about AIS and the impact it's been having. AIS is still relatively young. There's been, as you may be aware, there's been a little bit of a churn in that in that market space with uh, the, one of the tools that's used to, to receive and, and, and take action on um, automated sharing. But that's sort of settling out. There's a new version in the works of the STIX code, STIX 2.0, that's going to help us get better at at that processing it but but at the end of the day what we're going to have to do we have to let's assume that we've sorted out all those problems and we're really sharing effective information back and forth the receiver of that information has to have thought through what actions they're going to take based upon the indicators that we share with them uh, so part of our challenge is to score those indicators based upon how bad we think they are whether the, the whether the source is reliable all those kinds of things so that when you receive it you can make a good decision about how you're going to use it and then set your the decision engine that receives that information up to to account for that and take automated action that that is a big cultural move that i think um, is still sort of formative. Uh, the idea that a machine is going to send you something and your machines are going to automatically do something and if you haven't thought through that there's the potential there obviously to to upset your mission or your business and so that that takes a great deal of thought to get right and we're we're helping some folks think through that now. There's some challenges, as I mentioned, uh, but I think in the long run, that's that's what we want to be able to do is have a regular dialogue that goes back and forth, and make sure that when we send an indica indicator, it's got the quality with it, so that that the receiver can kind of comfortably have automated action taken rather than have to have a human look at something we sent them. It's interesting because I remember talking with Phyllis Schneck, the former deputy undersecretary for uh, the cybersecurity, in, you know, MPPD, before she left, uh, when she was with the Obama administration, she talked about almost getting a flu shot, right, very similar to getting inoculated against diseases. AIS was a piece of that. I know CDM, Einstein 3A was a piece of that. Is, is that all starting to come together slowly but surely? I mean, you kind of went through each piece 
separately, but talk about the holistic viewpoint. Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, we're pursuing improvements across the board in automated analysis and trend hunting and, and the assessment systems. I think those are coming together to be more effective than they were maybe at the outset. I'll be honest with you, within the NCIC, we're learning more about how to better use some of the information that we get uh, from those tools. And we're also learning how to set up better interaction with our partners in the departments and agencies so that when, uh, for example, when Einstein generates an, an alert, not only do we know about it, but we, we have some context that goes with it if, if context is possible. And if the department and agency that's receiving uh, has questions, they can pick up the phone and we have an established relationship that allows a good dialogue to happen and, and, uh, and effectively helps them in their cyber defense efforts. So from your, you know, you said holistic. That holistically, that's our our point of view to to have all these these tools working together and provide the the customer support to the folks that are receiving our information so that they can use it most effectively. That that's the end goal. And the other piece of this that you didn't mention, obviously, is the CTIC, the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center that's being run out of the, the intelligence world. They also are playing a role. You mentioned earlier, just when you get your information, not just from agencies and private sector, but also from the intelligence community, as well as from the FBI law enforcement. I know you can't talk too much about CTIC. That's a different program, but they're also part of this discussion, too, and helping you make those decisions based on not just an automated way, but help in the sense of protecting federal networks. Yes, CTIC is in a, in a strategic sense, and, and in some cases, uh, operationally, they do a pretty good job of putting together community production uh, so that it's understandable and usable. At a tactical level, we're, we're more down in the weeds with some of the other intelligence community partners and, and law enforcement partners in terms of actually what's happening, tools, tactics, procedures, ones and zeros, things like that. But the, as a whole, you know, the whole, that whole group of folks has been has been pretty cooperative in terms of this discussion that, that we need to have as we work particular instances or, or you know, uh, almost everything that we do is, is a, it's a, this is a team sport. Oh, absolutely. And I think that we're seeing that more and more as, as, the, as, as things get harder. You mentioned Sticks and Taxi. You mentioned, uh, I think, Sticks 2.0 is coming out. Where is DHS with those two information sharing tools and w- w- what's the future looking like? The Sticks Taxi effort uh, was something that was started in DHS, and uh, in 2015, it was transitioned to a more or less an international organization, the Organization for Advancement of Structured Information Standards, OASIS. Uh, and so they are the body that that is working multinationally to organize and improve the the standards. So, and we are, as you might expect, we're, we play an active role in that in that process. Um, developing, you know, documentation and tools and application programming and all those kinds of things, interfaces that work for Sticks and Taxi. And they're in the process of finalizing this 2.0 that we expect to, it's going to make it easier for people to use. And it's going to make it even easier for vendors to adopt their tool to be interoperable with the 2.0 standard. So it will be easier for the uh, ingest, if you will, and easier for it to understand, and then do what it needs to do. So if I'm if I'm sending indicators in 2.0, and you're receiving it with a particular vendor's tool, it's a whole lot easier for the 
the interface between those two tools to be set up and uh, and work more effectively. Now, DHS is still using the initial sticks taxi one right. and how's that playing a role in this information sharing, this automation of information sharing? Yeah, I mean, the one is is cranking away since its inception uh, in March of 2016. We we've shared about. 277,000 or so unique threat indicators through AIS. Um, and we, we just received um, some study results about uh, a comparative study on the AIS feed, if you will, compared to some other feeds that are out there. And though our numbers are much smaller, the general consensus of this study was that the quality was quite high and the timeliness was, in fact, quite a bit better than some of the other feeds. So we're pretty happy with that, but, but we still have a long ways to go. I mean, if you compare the, the volume, our, ours is 277K, and, and some of the other providers are providing 10 and 15 and and 20 times that number of indicators. Num- numbers don't necessarily mean goodness, but obviously we want to have more numbers, but we want to make sure that we maintain the quality and the timeliness as well. That's interesting. Now, was this study done by DHS or was no. this study done by somebody else? Somebody else. Are you? I'm not sure if it's still sensitive at all, but are you able to offer anything more about when you talk about what AIS was providing in terms of the quality and the goodness, as you said, what were some of the things that came out from but, it? Just that, just that they're generally the the quality of the indicator. So rather than having a you know a generic IP address that gets pushed in a threat feed that might revert back to Google or something like that, um, which obviously the numbers then get high. The, our numbers were lower, but we didn't have a preponderance of false positives and a preponderance of quote unquote junk that was in in our feed. And the review of uh, our delivery time versus some of the others was probably, I think they said it was somewhere between 100 and 120 days on average, a little bit faster. So we're, we're, we're pretty happy about that, but, but that's not the end of the story. I mean, we still have a long ways to go. And quite honestly, the biggest hurdle in my mind, I think, is to, to make sure that the people that are receiving it can use it the way that it was originally intended, which is to take automated action based upon their faith and their trust in the quality of the indicators based upon their risk profile and based upon how they set up their, their receipt uh, engine to, to do that. The end result of all these efforts, there, there's never an end, right? There's never a beginning for cyber. There's never an end for cyber. It's, it's, a, it's on a continuum. If we have this conversation again in a year, John, which I hope we'll, we'll talk before then, but if, if a year from now we have this conversation, what's going to be different in a year from now when it relates back to, uh, again, uh, CDM and Einstein and AIS, but as well as Sticks 2.0, as well as all this, this holistic view of, of information sharing and automated threat uh, intelligence and understanding? At the tactical level, I think AIS is going to be much more uh, productive and and useful for those that receive it. I hope that uh, Einstein is is continually adding capability to support the departments and agencies. I am confident that CDM is going to be uh, acting, performing as advertised. Although there's you know there's there's challenges there too because the departments and agencies all have different. You know, they all have different suites of, of tools, but I'm confident that CDM is going to be delivering what was advertised. And I think there's a, on the horizon, there's also a, a, a framework that we're partnered with the National Security Agency called Integrated Adaptive Cyber Defense, which is focused on increasing speed and scale of cyber defenses. So it's another level of automated information sharing with some potential for 
machine learning built into that as well. If you were to ask me that next year, I think we're going to be playing with that to see if it works as well as it should. And and Einstein and CDM and AIS are going to be fun- functioning probably twice as well as they are today. Or you, you piqued my interest. I got to ask the question now, John. You know that the work with NSA to integrated adaptive cyber defense. Is there more you can talk about this? Is, is this yeah, just... we're, we're, it's a sponsored research project with Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. And so they, those, the, the smart folks up at APL are, are doing the work. DHS and NSA just happen to be looking at how we're going to use it. And, and obviously, we're going to use it for different reasons. NSA is an intelligence organization. They, they, have, their, they have their path that they're going to go on. We're, we're looking at it from the path of, okay, how can this help us do better cyber defense? That's all the time we have for today. First, you heard from Jeanette Manfra, the Acting Undersecretary for Cybersecurity at the Homeland Security Department. She gave us a behind-the-scenes look at the federal response to the WannaCry ransomware attack. Then you heard from John Felker, the Director of the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, or NCIC, at the Homeland Security Department. Don't miss an episode of Ask the CIO. Subscribe today to the podcast on Podcast One and iTunes. I'm Jason Miller. Thanks for listening. listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show on our website, Ask the CIO, only on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM.